Alright, howdy folks, this is Devin Olson with the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. Uh, this episode and a couple more uh, that you're going to be hearing are basically episodes I recorded while I was on the road on my way to Florida. The audio quality is not the same as it is in the office here, though it's actually not as bad as I thought it would be. I thought it was going to be a lot worse, not too bad. You can still hear what I'm saying for the most part. Uh, one thing I do want to say before we get into the show, I've got a bit of a mouth like a sailor in these episodes. I'm driving down the road. I definitely cussed a few times. There may be an F-bomb here or there. In fact, I think on the first one I didn't make it 30 seconds. Um, it It's not like every other word is a cuss word, but if that's something that offends you, something that you don't really want to hear, I'm giving you this disclaimer now before we get into it uh, so that you can choose whether or not you want to proceed and listen to this episode. Now, a little bit about what these episodes are. There's three of them again. I don't know if you'll hear them uh, one week right after the other or if I'll keep some of them in cash and kind of release them when I don't have another episode. Um, but what they basically are is, you know, I'm on the road and I decided to just make some use of my time driving. And I recorded with my phone in my hand and the steering wheel on the other, uh, rambling on about whatever I felt like talking that day. Uh, so there's a little bit there just... Enjoy the show, I guess. Let me know uh, what you think about it. If you like the format, if you you know like uh, or dislike anything about it, and if you have anything that you'd like to discuss about it, you know, love to hear from you. Always like to hear from uh, people listening to the podcast. And with that, we'll go ahead and just get into it. I'll upload this audio and just let it play. Thank you very much. All right, howdy, folks. This is Devin Olson with the Wyoming Agriculture Podcast. We're going to try something new today. I am in the process of helping my grandparents move from Cheyenne, Wyoming, all the way down to Florida. So I've got a couple days of driving ahead of me, and the audio quality may suffer a little bit, but I thought I'd try something new here and just record a little bit off the cuff. Uh, Some roadside observations, some ramblings, some thoughts. All that good shit while I'm driving. So, um, to start off with, you know, I, I guess if we're gonna make this an official podcast episode, we probably ought to have a little bit of a sponsorship space. And I've really been hammering Amazon a lot lately. Of course, you can always support the show by following our Amazon link. Um, but I'd like to just take a moment and maybe. Uh, Let's do a quick little sponsorship for the uh, the farm website today. You can tell this is really off the cuff. I mean, just talking out my ass. Alright, so Cackleberry Farm and Garden up there in Casper, Wyoming. We offer fresh cut microgreens, starting in on some blue oyster mushrooms, grass-fed lamb, and all sorts of other delicious farm products. Uh, We're also tinkering with some other stuff. So... If you're in the Casper area, definitely check us out, www.cackleberryfg, as in flaminggorge.com. On that website, you're going to find all sorts of different products. We do deliver into the Casper area now, so if you want to learn more about that, definitely sign up for the newsletter on the farm website. I send out a newsletter every Friday with a bit of a fresh sheet, let you know what's available, what the price is, and then you get back to me by Monday what you want and we'll get it delivered to you on Tuesday. So it's a Tuesday delivery every week, uh, midweek, you know, get your uh, groceries in. 
So again, if you want to support the uh, farm, that is www.cackleberryfg.com. And with that, let's go ahead and move on to the ramblings of today's show. So uh, what I wanted to kind of talk about today while I'm driving here is a little bit of roadside observations, and this might just be kind of a theme for the entirety of the trip here, give us a few episodes to run off of. I kind of want to take some mental notes and observations on the way down there to see what changes in the landscape and uh, environment I noticed just driving alongside the road. And as farmers and agriculturists uh, and permaculturists within the state of Wyoming and beyond and other places around the world, I'm hoping that some of these observations will prove rather useful. So this time of year, one of my favorite things to really observe and keep an eye out for is snow patterns and wind patterns. This is uh, where the snow accumulates due to the high winds that we get here. And by this time of year, we start to have somewhat regular snowfall. And those things coupled together will form some bare areas and it will also form some really pretty massive snow drifts uh, that amount to quite a large amount of water accumulated in one spot. A couple little quick notes on that. I mean, if you're uh, collecting a lot of water in one spot, you might notice that if you're not careful with that, you might actually be causing erosion in that collection site. Why might that happen? Well, most of the time in Wyoming, when that snow is melting, the ground is still frozen because it's been cold for months at that point. So you have melting and running water running across frozen ground that is incapable of absorbing that water in its full capacity. So you're not getting all that water directly into the soil. Just because it's there doesn't mean it's being utilized. So that's where smart design and intentional uh, thinking and placement of elements in your design is going to really make a huge difference in how much water you're able to absorb and use. And if you're doing this right, you should see a difference if you, over the years, you know, as you charge your soil and your aquifer, where the places where you have extra moisture, you know, in August, it's going to be a pretty big difference. And you'll see some of this as you're driving down the road in Wyoming and other places that have these snow drifts, where they've got these massive snow fences that the highway department will put in to help prevent drifting on the road. Well, all the way into July, those areas will still be very green. And even in August, sometimes they'll be green. And if they're not green, they're going to be a little bit taller, a little more biomass there. And that's definitely something that helps to feed the wildlife, feed ranchers cattle, uh, to you know maintain some seed diversity. And that's just uh, you know that's that's something that's worth observing. So one of the things that really makes a big difference here. Um, is is how much snow you can capture over the winter. So if you can capture a larger amount of snow than the guy next to you, I mean, that ends up equaling quite a bit more water to go into the spring with. And of course, if you're placing that water in the right place, that doesn't always have to mean waterlogged soil. It could mean a rehydrated landscape. So, there's a few things that you'll notice as far as the areas that do collect snow well and the areas that do not. Now, 
first off, these bare, flat fields that don't really have much for obstructions, okay? They might have been hay fields that were cut. Uh, they might have been crop fields that have been cropped. Uh, maybe it's just native prairie grass that hasn't really been managed, so it's not really holding on to a lot. But even, even that will hold more than a bare field, all right? So if you're looking at a bare field or, or bare soil, you'll notice that very quickly after a snowstorm, because of all of our freeze-thaw cycles, that either the wind or the sun will remove most of that moisture from that spot. So it's gonna blow that snow off of the surface of the soil because there's nothing to hold it in place, or it's going to evaporate it uh, directly through sublimation. Now, if you don't know what sublimation is, it, it occurs a lot around here and you can definitely see it on the roads. Sublimation is when snow goes directly from a frozen state to a vapor state and it doesn't ever really turn into water and sometimes it'll still turn into water but you end up losing a percentage of the moisture from snow uh, to sublimation every single time that it, it thaws out um, you can definitely reduce how much you're losing to sublimation through some some things and we'll try to talk about that in this episode but sublimation is not necessarily your friend when you're trying to collect water so that's, that's one of the things you'll notice with those bare spots. Um, the other thing you'll notice is a lot of the times, depending on your soil type, especially if it's a little heavier in clay, you're gonna end up with some capping on that soil. So the surface of the soil is gonna get kind of hard and it's not really gonna accept any water anyway, uh, which even if it's thawed out, you know, is a problem. You add to that the fact that it might still be frozen and, and you got a double whammy where the soil's not necessarily accepting a whole lot of water. And that's how you get a lot of runoff. With that runoff comes erosion if you're not mitigating that and managing that water flow. You want to pacify your water, all right? You're not trying to uh, hold on to each and every drop per se, though the more you can get the better, but you definitely want the water that leaves your site to leave it slower, calmer, and cleaner than it came onto your site. And that's going to do a lot of things for you. It's going to ensure that you're really utilizing that water to the best of your ability. So I'm, I'm just passing this field here, okay? And something I noticed about that field, it's got short grass, so not a whole lot of snow there. You can see the grass poking up through it. There's a couple of sagebrush here and there. And, uh, well, you'll see that everywhere in Wyoming, so it's not like I have to be somewhere specific to see that. But you'll notice with the sagebrush and the yucca clumps, uh, if you get close and you look at them, or even just from the road, if you look a little closer, you're going to notice that there's a bunch of small snowdrifts that are accumulated near those those bushes, that sagebrush. That's snow capture, that's moisture capture, and I think that's part of how the sagebrush and the yucca does so well in Wyoming, because it's collecting its own water in that way. Uh, the additional thing that it's doing there is it does provide some small amount of shade to that snow as it melts. So it's not directly getting supplemented, or sublimated as uh, quickly. It's also protecting it from a little bit of wind. So that just increases the ability of the snow to melt and uh, go into the soil and be utilized by that plant. So obstructions like that really do a lot to add to the amount of snow moisture that is captured on a site. And if you look at a spot that has a lot of sagebrush growing on it, compared to a freshly mowed hay field, the difference in 
snow there is a few inches, all right? So you're going from maybe at best a half inch of snow cover to about six to eight inches of snow cover and maybe more depending on the size of your sagebrush. That can mean quite a lot. So I've read before that about 10 inches of snow is equivalent to about one inch of water. So if you've got 10 inches of snow caught somewhere because of a sagebrush compared to a half inch of snow, I mean, you're going from one inch of water or rainfall down to, what would that be, a half inch? So you got about 0.5 of 1% of water, if I'm doing that math right. Half of, half one cent, no, it'd be about 5%. 5% of a, an inch. So not a whole hell of a lot by the time that melts. And of course, you know, you get higher sublimation there, so you might be getting even less. But with those, uh, that little higher drift, you know, you're getting a lot more water there. So that's one of the things that really captures a lot of snow. Another thing you'll notice catches snow around here is texture in the landscape. So these uh, lakes out here, I'm, I'm passing Glendo right now, all right? It's frozen over. So that lake, you know, it might have a solid covering of snow on it right now. When the wind gets to blowing, a lot of that snow is gonna go away. Some of it will probably stay, but at best, that's adding maybe a, an inch or two of water uh, across the entire surface of that lake. Now, if you uh, look over to the right here, or to the, I guess I should use directions, to the west of Glendo as you're driving by, you'll notice that there's these hills, all right? And if you focus in on some of the edges of those hills, especially the steeper spots, you're gonna see a little bit of snow accumulation, especially on the leeward side of these draws and ravines. And that can accumulate quite a bit. Um, out of my grandpa's place, he's got a lot of draws and, and we end up with snow out there pretty much every year uh, by the end of the year that is about six foot deep, maybe four to 12 feet wide and as long as the draw is, and that's a significant amount of water by the time that melts off. It's like having your own mini glacier to feed your property. So massive difference in snow output there and water output. Uh, one thing that you'll notice as you're driving along these roads in Wyoming and, and probably a lot of other places, farmers will put up a fence, you know, even if it's uh, barbed wire just for cattle. And the tumbleweeds that blow around here will kind of tend to accumulate on that fence as they get blown around by the high winds and they get caught on those fences they don't move anywhere and it creates essentially a small debris fence so along that fence line you'll go from maybe an inch or two of snow up to you know five to six inches eight inches but of course that's along quite a large stretch of fence line at times so that can uh, amount to quite a bit of water uh, that can be utilized in uh, recharging your soil. And that's uh, part of the, the thinking behind my debris fencing that I had talked about. If you listen to that episode a few episodes ago, I believe it was episode six, if I remember right. Um, I also did that blog post on it, and that's part of what I'm doing as a strategy to maintain some moisture and capture some snow on my property out there in Homa Hills that I'm renting. All right, so we talked about 
the difference between a freshly mowed lawn and even a prairie grass where the grass is a little bit taller and, and you'll see that goes from about a half inch to about two inches of snow. Uh, and then your sagebrush. And then you got your ravines and your draws. You got your fence lines with a little bit of uh, um, tumbleweeds that are causing some snow capture. So those are all great things. You'll also notice uh, with trees that you get a little bit more, particularly to, uh, coniferous trees. You won't see a whole lot with deciduous trees, some, somewhat, but not, not like you will with coniferous trees, like these junipers and uh, pines that grow around here. There tends to be a little bit more snow capture at ground level with those. But some of the advantage that you have with those trees, even the deciduous trees to some degree, is that they are casting shade and they are doing a little bit of wind blocking so that at the very least will reduce your sublimation so that more of the snow you do get is going to actually melt. And a lot of this, you know, I mean, I, I am rambling on, it's just snow. Some people really hate the snow, but it's something you really have to understand if you wanna be successful in a place like Wyoming that's extremely arid, super windy, hot and dry in the summer, freezing cold and windy in the winter. If you wanna be successful at growing crops, or even pasture for your livestock in an environment like this, understanding the way that snow works in this landscape and how to make the best use of it is going to do a lot to help you along the way. So it's important to at least observe for yourself, even if you don't want to listen to me ramble for 30 minutes or more. Take a look around when you're driving. Watch how the snow accumulates in some areas. As the spring comes, watch what that snow does as it's melting. What areas are getting wet what areas are staying dry? Are there areas where the snow could be doing some good, but because the ground is frozen and it's not going in, where's that water going to then if it's moving? Can you do something to slow that down? Can you do something to help it sink in, spread out a little bit? Can you do something, anything, to utilize that snow to your advantage? In the off season when you're not working super hard on the farm, you can utilize water that is coming in and accumulating on your site. All right, so that's one of the observations, one of the key observations you'll find driving in Wyoming is snow accumulation. Uh, it's one of my favorite things to look at this time of year. You know, it really, when it starts to melt, boy, there's a lot of water there. So if you can utilize it, you got something going for you. Um, all right, so I guess something that's directly related to that, I mean, the, the snow's drifting for a reason, right? It's the wind. So wind is an integral element in Wyoming. I mean, you're not gonna get away from wind for the most part, anywhere you are in the state. And the way that you farm and the, and the place where you uh, site your elements is oftentimes largely determined by the wind. You know, the direction of your house will be determined by the wind. The, uh, the placement of certain systems, the survivability of your plants and your crops and your trees and whether or not your livestock are going to be able to survive a cold blizzard or not all of that is affected directly by the wind so understanding the way the wind moves across your landscape the way that you can utilize wind to your advantage is going to be very beneficial all right so first off the challenges i mean everybody's pretty aware of the challenges if you live in wyoming if you don't live in wyoming just imagine hurricane speed winds sustained for days at a time. I mean, it's not always like that, but 
hot damn, it gets windy here. And sometimes that wind don't let up. And that's why one of my questions on the podcast is always asking producers what the worst thing is that the Wyoming wind has done to them. Because for a lot of us, that wind is absolutely destructive. But it can be beneficial as well, all right? So we've been talking about the snow drift. That's bringing in water. At the same time, whether you're seeing it or not, within that snow and during the summer, there is soil, organic matter, and seeds being blown in by that same wind. And some of those same systems that are used to capture snow and water in the winter are capturing soil, seeds, and organic matter in the summer and throughout the year. So placement of those systems becomes pretty critical for maintaining a healthy ecosystem. Now, another uh, thing about the wind, I mean, it's pretty desiccating. I've noticed over the last couple weeks, this is a pretty common pattern in Casper area, um, and I, I'm pretty sure it's somewhat common in most of the state, but we, we kind of get, you know, a, a system that'll move in. And the wind will typically blow it in at high speeds. Sometimes it doesn't, but either way, that system comes in and it, it might drop some snow or some water. When that hits, it settles maybe for a day or a couple hours. And then as it's moving out at the tail end of that system is more wind and wind ahead of the, the next system coming in. So what moisture is hitting the ground, it's just being desiccated. I mean, it's like a, an air, a hair dryer, you know, whether you got the heat on or off, it's just blowing air rapidly across the soil and across your uh, newly acquired snowfall or rainfall. So understanding that, you can uh, design systems that are either going to be drier or wetter, depending on your preference and what you're doing. Now, for me, I tend to prefer a little more wet, right? So. If you're looking to maintain a little bit of moisture, you know, having that wind block in the summer is definitely beneficial as well because after that rain finally does come, you want to hold on to as much of that as you can. You're going to do that a little more effectively if you can slow that wind down or at least buffer it a bit. There's a lot of different ways to break the wind. I mean, you'll see a lot of these old homesteads around here will plant tree lines uh, that they planted as soon as they moved in. And they've got tree lines around every fence line typically because they're just trying to protect the space and those are usually around the home as well and that's that's predominantly where a lot of these uh, old homesteaders would plant their trees because you didn't really have the money to go planting acres and acres and acres of trees that would just die on you and it was kind of hard to baby trees that were you know in the back 40 so to speak so right up next to the house you'll typically see a tree line or two What's in these tree lines? Well, typically it's going to be juniper, uh, pine, Siberian pea shrub, tulip poplars, um, cottonwoods, things like that. Um, occasionally you'll see some other species in there, but essentially it's, it's going to be mostly those. But let's look at those as what they are. Let's break them down into the kind of element that they are and, and why they would plant that way. Okay, so your junipers and your pines are a coniferous tree. They tend to grow a little bit thicker and they provide year-round windbreak. Now they're not a solid wall, but they buffer the wind a little bit. So all those little limbs and uh, needles and such in there, those are slowing the wind down, kind of filtering it if you will. Think of it as air passing through 
like a sieve or a, a cloth, you know, it's still gonna make it through, but it slows it down a bit. And a lot of that wind ends up going up and over the trees. But what happens if you just do a, a row of those? Well, with pines in particular, but definitely with some junipers, what you end up with uh, about 20 years, 30 years down the line, sometimes sooner, sometimes later, is right about ground level, those trees just don't really have any growth. It's pretty much just the trunk. And that doesn't provide a whole lot of wind protection at the ground level. So you end up with almost a wind funnel right there where the wind can actually get accelerated passing underneath that tree. So what do these guys usually do? Well, sometimes it would be a succession where they just plant another row a few feet out, maybe a year or two later. Sometimes it would be a different species. And that's where you'll often see Siberian pea shrubs planted next to these junipers. Uh, my grandma at her house down in Cheyenne that she had uh, I, I played around a lot down there when I was younger. Uh, did some culture beds and, and all sorts of stuff. But um, that was something that was part of that original homestead planting. When that home was built, there was the junipers planted and then the Siberian pea shrubs on the north side. It was a uh, east-west fence line and the north side had the Siberian pea shrubs. So that in the summer would provide even an additional windbreak because of the leaves, but even in the winter, uh, just the structure of those bushes and shrubs would help to protect a little bit lower towards the ground and it actually helped to create a little bit of a, uh, almost like a, a turbulence pillow, if you will, that would push the air up and over the tree line. So it, it does a little bit as far as the, the movement of the air to have that smaller, lower-lying shrub uh, adjacent to your taller trees. And I, I believe most of them I'm seeing on the north side, so there's a little bit of, of uh, intentionality as far as your, your direction that you're planting there. I do find that a lot of the winds around here um, are predominantly coming from the west and southwest, and our storm winds are going to tend to come from the north and northeast. Every so often we're going to get winds that come directly from the east and uh, very rarely directly from the south. But the eastern storms, when you tend to have those, those tend to be pretty nasty. They bring in something something heavy with them or something really cold. Uh, those tend to be the, the storms in which I lose a few chickens or something. You know, it's it's the those are the the nasty storms of the year. But for the most part, you can kind of count on most of your wind coming from the west and southwest in this area, at least in the areas I have experience with. And some of your uh, winter storms have come in from the north. So what does that tell you? If you're, you're building some shelter belts to the west and the north of an area that you want to be sheltered, you know, maybe those are the areas where you want to concentrate a little bit more of your uh, coniferous trees. Your deciduous trees might be a little best, a little bit better on the east and the south. Uh, okay, so we got onto shelter belts and these are some of the things that can help you utilize the wind to your advantage, all right? So, or at least work with the wind, all right? So the wind is gonna do what it's gonna do, but you can help buffer an area, protect a little bit, create yourself a little bit of a microclimate uh, where the wind doesn't affect you quite as much. Uh, let's talk about some other things you can do to kind of buffer that. So, I mean, you probably heard my other episode uh, on debris fencing. If you haven't, go check that out. And if you have, um, 
borate. And if you're not really sure what that is, I mean, you're basically just using uh, debris or you're using, you know, small round wood, firewood, uh, split rails, you know, basically naturally occurring materials to build yourself some fencing. And a lot of that can double as snow fence and windbreak. <coughs> now, windbreak doesn't always have to be large enough to break the wind for you. So let's talk about like a little garden, right? Um, a lot of your plants aren't really going to get a whole lot taller than four feet. So something that's four to five foot tall can make a pretty effective windbreak for a garden like that and help to uh, improve your water and moisture retention within that garden plot and reduce how much the wind is really whipping your plants apart. You know, I've had plants that would otherwise do okay, but the wind just shreds them, destroys them. So having a little bit of windbreak can do a lot to help increase your survivability in your garden. What about animals? I mean, what are you raising? So cattle, you know, a lot of people will do a, a good six to eight foot tall fence, but do they, you know, the height there only gives you so much. I mean, you can go a thousand feet tall and the wind is only gonna break for, it's about a, a hundred yards or so past that. You know, you might end up with slightly more on something that's tall as a thousand feet, let's be honest. but. A tree or something like that you know that's growing to maybe 45 feet you're not really going to get windbreak you know 30 acres away from where that tree line is so you're only going to get it about 100 yards so you'll see six to eight foot uh cattle fences around here on the ranches for giving them a little bit of windbreak well those guys have got herds you know so some of them might be bunched up and a couple cattle might be as far as 20 feet away from that fence and of course the cows might be doing a little bit of rotating to keep each other warm but the uh the idea is that you don't need a 30 foot tall, tall fence to uh defend the entire cattle and it, it wouldn't really do you a whole hell of a lot of good anyway to go that tall because it's only going to protect you so far what about sheep or goats well those are a little bit shorter so maybe a four or five foot fence just like your garden is all you need to keep those protected from the wind and that harsh winter weather or even from drying out so fast in the heat of the summer <coughs> all right and then you know that anyway anywhere from like a foot to four foot tall is what i'm trying to drive at here is really all you need for a lot of your applications if you're trying to protect a, a planting of trees or something you don't need a six foot tall fence to protect those trees you know, a couple feet tall might be all they need just to get established, let them get their roots in the ground, let them get growing, and then they can handle it. You don't want to baby them too much, because then you end up with weak trees, weak plants, and when these uh, really severe storms hit, it takes them out, or, you know, it just weakens the genetic pool. We need a pretty strong genetic pool to make it through uh, Wyoming weather. So, a couple things to buffer the wind there, all right? So, what about ways you can utilize the wind? You'll see a lot of windmills around here. Now, I'm no advocate of the government stealing your money and wasting it on trillion dollar windmills that will never pay themselves back if they spin until they fall into pieces. But, individual homesteads, you know, there is some use for windmill technology. We do have a lot of wind around here. So that can be something that's an adjunct to your existing power supply to help give you a little bit more uh, resiliency. A lot of ranchers will use windmills simply to drive manual pumps. So the windmill turns a pump when the wind is blowing, water's coming out. 
when the wind ain't blowing and ain't pumping. And they'll just have it pump up into a big uh, stock tank that will hold enough water that, you know, if a, a week or two goes by without a whole lot of wind, the cattle aren't running out. That's a good simple design. It's something that is, you know, pretty, uh, pretty useful, pretty reliable for the most part. There is going to be a little more maintenance with the wind system than there would be with solar, but that is what it is, right? Now, a couple other ways you can use the wind to your advantage. We talked about collecting water with it, using those snow drifts. What about in the summer when it gets really hot? All right, so having a little bit of wind then is really kind of nice to help cool you down. Sometimes when it's hot like that, you know, there isn't a whole hell of a lot of wind. So let me talk to you about a little bit of a design here uh, that can help you out. There's, uh, there's a few old, I believe they're Japanese homes is where this took place, but a lot of these homes, they would have the main structure for the home and then an outbuilding or a secondary structure built right next to them. And they would intentionally build the two walls of that structure that were adjoining or adjacent to each other so that they were not squared up. They'd be offset a little bit. One would be skewed a bit. So that one end or one corner of each home would be closer than the other corners. All right, so if you can kind of think about what I'm talking there, you got one home that's set up on kind of vertical axis and then you put your other one you tilt it a little bit, like 10 degrees or something. And I'm sure they probably worked out a certain degree when they had this, but they they then position that in such a way. These were mountain homes, okay? So the thin side of the home, uh, or of that hallway, if you will, that outdoor hallway, would be facing towards the mountain, the uphill side. And then the wider side would be facing down. Now, what that would do with their diternal winds, diternal winds are the winds that come as a valley heats up and cools down at night and in the morning. What that would do is as the wind was coming down the mountain, it would pacify that wind coming through there because it would have a smaller opening to come in at, and by the time it came out, it was much larger. So it would pacify that wind, reduce how windy it is, and it would uh, give the front of their home a little bit more of a sheltered environment when that cold air is coming down off the mountain. And then when the air was heating up and there was warm air coming out of the valleys and going up into the mountain, it would actually speed that air up. So if it was really hot out, you could sit at the narrow end of that and it would uh, it would accelerate that wind to give you a little bit cooler of a place so you have a little bit more wind. So if you don't have a whole hell of a lot of wind and you've got a design like this where you're we'll call it a wind corridor, or you're accelerating the wind one direction, slowing it down the other, you can, do, uh, you can do a lot to help cool yourself with that, okay? So, in Wyoming, you know, not all of the places where we're at, we have we don't always have those diurnal winds, but if you understand what the principle of that is, all right, you've got a narrow side and a wider side, and depending on what direction the wind's coming through, it's either gonna pacify or it's going to accelerate that wind. So you can build structures, you can build fences, you can build tree lines, you can build uh, just about anything that'll help to funnel that wind one direction or the other to do what you'd like to do. I mean, do you want a more shelter area? Make a thin side and pacify what wind is coming through there. Do you want a little cooler area in the summer? Maybe uh, have a deck that's situated on the narrow side of one that's catching the wind coming from the west. 
Now, of course, that's going to have a drawback. You know, you have a really windy day and that's going on. You got already 80 mile an hour winds that are being accelerated. There are certain things you're just not going to put there because they're going to go bye-bye. So you got to think about that, but understand that there's a little bit of a design there that you can use to your advantage to accelerate or decelerate the wind as you see fit. All right, a couple other things here. Uh, ponds, ponds, rivers, lakes, streams. All right, these are all bodies of water. They need oxygen. And that's part of why we have so many trout in Wyoming. A lot of our water is quite oxygenated. It has plenty of oxygen. A lot of that is simply from being cold. Cold water holds on to oxygen better. But if you have a farm pond and it doesn't have a whole hell of a lot of oxygen in it, some of that might just be the placement of the pond. It needs a decent amount of wind blowing across the surface of that pond to create oxygenation in the water. All right, so you might be able to take a pond from growing something that's not uh, particularly oxygen rich to something that needs a lot of oxygen simply by thinking about this and finding a way to encourage water to grow across, blow across the surface of that pond. That's a double-edged sword in Wyoming. All right, so that wind, of course, as we were talking, is desiccating that will dry out things so you know depending on the pond and how well it holds water throughout the year that might not be what you want to do you might want to keep water or wind off of the pond so that you can hold that water as long as you can but depending on the pond or the lake you, you might want to encourage a little more air to move across it so that it stays well oxygenated your fish are healthy your uh, ecosystem within that aquaculture is healthy and that can uh, translate to stock tanks, that can translate to fish tanks, IBC totes, aquaponic tanks, things of that nature. You might want a little more water, or oxygen within that pond or that stock tank. You know, if, it, if the wind's blowing across it well enough, a stock tank or something of the sort, you know, the wind's enough around here to stop mosquitoes from breeding. Because it just agitates the surface of that water just enough that there's not really enough of a still area for mosquitoes to do any breeding in. Um, so that's another way that the air can be used to your advantage. You can also place things that need a little higher humidity downwind from a body of water or a tank of water to help increase the amount of humidity that that element is going to have exposed to it. Uh, let's see, let's think about some other things here. Wind, wind, wind. Oh, so windy. Um, let's see. I mean, obviously for freshness, you know, of your air, you got good fresh air. Uh, and you can kind of think about placement of things, all right? So if you're gonna be raising pigs, especially in a more conventional manner, uh, where they are in a pig pen or a pig sty, you probably don't want to place that element upwind from your house. That's probably, just as if not more important around here than what's uphill. It's probably just as important to make sure it's not upwind if you're trying not to smell pig shit all day. Now, you know, there's one of those sayings, you know, if it stinks, you're doing it wrong. And that can certainly apply to some degree, but I'm not here to bash how you're uh, choosing to raise your animals, but think about where you're placing them, all right? If you're placing them upwind from you, it's gonna make a a little more arguments between you and the spouse or just everybody a little more cranky because I got to smell that shit all day. Uh, that's another thing to think 
Um, as far as trash, all right, that's something to really think about around here, especially you get out in the rural areas and the wind really rips up, man, and it will take things from people. Sometimes they don't know it, sometimes they see it and they go, oh, that's moving faster than I can run, I ain't chasing that. And sometimes people are just lazy fucking slobs and they don't mind littering, but either way, you know, there is a decent amount of trash that you're gonna find blown around out in the prairie and understanding how that is affected by the wind can help you to use that to your advantage or to your disadvantage. So, it's the same sort of things that are gonna stop uh, snow and, and buffer the wind are also going to be collecting a lot of trash, particularly on the upwind side. So you can think of where you place these elements in such a way that it will be convenient for you to go along them and pick that trash up as it comes in, because it will come in. You're going to have some upwind neighbors that aren't super respectful of, of uh, where their trash goes. You're going to have some upwind neighbors that try their best and lose things because when that wind's 95 miles an hour for three days in a row, well, it is what it is. Things go. Things disappear. And, uh, and you know, those 90 plus mile an hour winds might be a little more rare, but it's definitely not unheard of to have 40 to 65 mile an hour winds on a regular basis. So just think about that and uh, and where trash is going to be going. I mean, sometimes that trash is pretty significant. Out of my grandpa's place, uh, I've seen massive water tanks. I'm talking about a 3,000 gallon tank, folks. I mean, that's a big tank. Blown in by the winds. Empty, of course. I mean, if it's full of water, it wouldn't be moving. But a 3,000 gallon tank, I mean, imagine how big that is and that, it's got a sizable property. It's not, you know, a massive ranch, but 40 acres, you know, it's not a little post of stamp backyard in the middle of downtown Denver. This is a decent sized property and we've got a 3,000 gallon tank that blew in one day and ended up in the middle of his property. So that had to blow from, we think we know what property it was, but that, that had to have blown about 25 to 30 acres to get to where it's at. All right, so that gives you an idea of how much stuff is moving when it's windy like this. I mean, you'll get tons, tons of fiberglass and sheet metal and, uh, and other such panels that are blowing around in the wind. Those catch the wind like crazy. They're always blowing. You'll get a lot of little plastic bags and trash and people's pots and barrels and stuff like that will be moving around. So. To some degree, you know, you can utilize these as a collection stream for things you can use, but that doesn't mean you want all of this trash, all right? Um, and that's something to think about when it comes to all this wind. Anyway, uh, I'm getting to where I'm kind of rambling on quite a bit. I'm not really sure if this is an extremely helpful episode, but I hope it gets you to think a little bit about what the wind is doing, what the snow is doing, Take some observations while you're driving down the road, whether you're just uh, heading to church or go to do errands for the day, or if you're on a road trip like I am, take a moment, look around, see what the wind and the snow is doing, see what the plants are doing, how they're adapting. You notice something cool? Do you notice something neat? You know, is there maybe a, you know, one tree that's given just enough shelter to help something unique kind of grow there? Is there, you know, a spot just down the hill from somebody's uh, feedlot cattle operation that is just 
a complete bush of trees and shrubs that are overgrowing because of the excess nutrient? What sort of things are you seeing that you can utilize to help you think more intentionally and design better for your success in Wyoming agriculture, whether you're a homesteader, a farmer, or something in between? All right, guys. That's it. Uh, just want a reminder, if you're going to support the show or the farm, you can do that at cackleberryfg.com. That's cackleberryfg, as in flaminggorge.com. Go to the farm website there. You can order what we have available. Thanks again, and until next time, go on and grow on.